The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Let's Fix Work is brought to you by WorkHuman, the HR event you don't want to miss. Visit WorkHuman.com and learn more today. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. I'm Lori Rudiman. Today's guest is Hung Lee. Hung is the founder of Workshape.io, the revolutionary recruiting platform for software engineers. He's also an editor of the leading industry newsletter called Recruiting Brain Food. I love that newsletter, and I know you will, too. Today, Hung and I are talking about the real currency of business, relationships. Whether you're an entrepreneur just starting out or a seasoned careerist who's curious about hanging a shingle, Hung and I have an honest chat about work, mental health, entrepreneurship, and what it takes to actually make a sale. Spoiler alert, it's really hard to sell stuff. So if you're interested in all that, sit tight and I'll be right back with Hung Lee and more Let's Fix Work. Work is broken, and so is the way you think about it. Host Lori Rudiman is picking up the pieces so you can take control of your career, put yourself first, and be your own HR. With the Let's Fix Work podcast, here's Lori. Hey, Hung. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. Hey, Lori. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me on. Oh, my goodness. Well, before we get started, Hung, I need you to tell everybody where you're located physically today. Where are you coming in from? I'm coming in from the UK in my London office. So so yes, in gloomy London in January. That's where I am. <laughs> well, it's all right. You know, I'm in gloomy North Carolina. So I love the power of technology. You and I have known one another forever and we don't talk enough. And that's the beauty of this podcast. I get to talk to all my friends. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very pleased. And I think, you know, I love the podcasting movement. I think it's been great to see it especially last couple of years. And I'm very pleased to see you do it because you've, oh. you've always been a natural at this. So You're, you're so you know, kind. That's why that's we're friends. Be missing. Yeah, it's kind of <laughs> missing. I'm very pleased to see you kind of come back with a bang with this. Well, thank you. Thank you. You know, Hung, it's the time of year when people dream about quitting their jobs and starting a business. And so we're here today to talk about the real truths of entrepreneurship. And you are a serial entrepreneur. So as we get started, can you tell us a little bit about your journey? Why are you an expert to talk today about entrepreneurship? Uh, because I'm also a serial failure at entrepreneurship. <laughs> <so>, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's why we're friends again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I tell you, I mean, so last time I had a job was probably 10 years ago, right? So I worked as a recruitment agent. Um, I was reasonably successful at that, set up a bunch of companies as a partner with other recru- recruiters and so on. I kind of left the idea of building a company um, around 2009, where I thought I needed to be driving my own car. I need to be the, the person in charge and all the rest of it. And yeah, in that time, there's been three or four businesses that I've launched. I'd say two have been successful. One nearly made me bankrupt. And the other one's kind of middling, right? Yeah, so, yeah. You know, well, it's not it's, a bad track record. Yeah, it's kind of like that. So, yeah. so I, I know a little bit about it at my level, right? So I'm not like Steve Jobs or anybody like that. But I've been the guy who's worked as an employee and then stumbled badly when I started to become an entrepreneur. And from that, I've, I've learned a bunch of stuff. I'm sure that's um, helped me, I think, make better decisions as I go, for sure. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about that because most people who listen to Let's Fix Work don't work in startups, but they are curious. I know that. They've reached out to me. So what are the stereotypes of entrepreneurship and what stereotypes are right and what are wrong? You know what? All the stereotypes are right and wrong at the same time because it's all just a matter of exaggeration. You know, there's truths. Everything you know about startup is true. But if you just tweak it and exaggerate it just a little bit, then what is a dream can very quickly turn into a nightmare. Example, everyone's very passionate about their, their, their work. Actually, that's true. Um, I've never met more passionate people than the people who are literally working without pay, 80 hours a week, building a product, sweating away. These people are really passionate. But you know what? If that lasts too long in terms of you know uh, how long these people are not being paid or you're not being paid, actually, that can pretty much become a very demoralizing experience. So... I think you can pick out any of the stereotypes, pro and con, about startup life or in entrepreneurial life. And you know what? They'll all be true. You just got to figure out what it looks like when you tweak it. Turn it to 11, as Spinal Tap would say. <laughs> and then, you know, what, what would be amazing actually turns into something terrible. Yeah, that is so true. You know, one of the stereotypes that I encounter as both an entrepreneur and just an observer is the bro culture within startups. And yet, okay. neither you nor I are typical bros. You know, we don't look like a six foot two tall white men who went to Princeton or Harvard. So, in that I, I, way, I don't that's... know who you hang around with, Molly. <laughs> I don't see too many of those folks in my world. Um, but but they're, out, they're out in the coast. I mean, they're definitely out in the coast here in America. And so, it's interesting to me because there is that stereotype type of the successful uh, young white male entrepreneur who's out there doing it. But there are a lot of entrepreneurs who are middle-aged ladies like me and middle-aged gentlemen like you, right? I mean, they're, they're out there. And I think we don't talk enough about those individuals who are chasing their dreams. Right. And you know what? I think a lot of that is two factors. Number one is visibility, because obviously the, the Silicon Valley has had a huge gravitational pull in terms of media interest and so forth. And secondly, it's also about sort of the the founder effect, right? The founder effect, not meaning startup founder, but who are the first people that started to do it? And the key to success in the Valley is obviously fundraising. And if you look at sort of the... I read a stat earlier today, I forget from which source, but something like 70% of all VC type individuals in the Valley come from two schools. Oh, uh, they're either wow. Yale or Harvard, right? Wow, wow. Um, so these are very rich Ivy League schools, the creme de la creme. And yes, they're going to be well-fed. They're going to be tall. <laughs> yes, <laughs> they're probably going to be white, you know, and they're also going to back like the light. They're going to know who they think is good. It's someone from Harvard, someone from Yale, someone from Princeton, MIT. You could pick those things up. In the UK, it's the same. It's Cambridge, Oxford, Imperial, a couple of those schools. They're going to get the funding because that's where the VCs are from. And they're going to have the success. And then that just builds on to itself. So I think the founder effect is real alongside with this magnification that you get from the media. But you're absolutely right. Uh, one of the beauties of the internet is that it is an enabler for people to set up businesses from all kinds of places. And actually, it's just simply a matter of getting the right spotlight to those folks. There's, there's a lot of people out there that, that actually are building great businesses that aren't prominent in our minds. So who's part of your community that you really admire right now and who may surprise us as being part of your community? You know, that's a, such a tough question for me to answer, Laurie. Um, and I think the reason is, is because I tend not to have heroes. Oh, tell me more. I, I always think that the, the best person to make a decision or the best person to ever think about as a mental model is, is yourself because you're the only person that's lived your life. 
you're the best person to make the decision for you. So I've never kind of got to the point where I thought, oh, what would, what would Jesus Christ do in this situation? <laughs> well, good. I mean, that's uh, great. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, you know, or, or what would Steve Jobs do? Let's put it into yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I never, th- I never thought that because you know what? I'm not Steve Jobs. He's not me. I'm driving my car already as I am now. I'm the best guy to make that call. I love that. And I love that confidence. And that's a unique take on entrepreneurship because normally when I work with individuals within my community, there's always like one person in the local community they admire, the one person who made it or the one person who uh, seems to have made it, right? And we don't know what's happening behind the scenes and everybody tries to emulate that individual and what you get is a copy of a copy of a copy. So I love that you take inspiration from your own work. I also know that that could be a little alienating and there are some truths about entrepreneurship that I don't think we talk about enough that you can become isolated as an entrepreneur. Rates of depression and suicide are higher. And I wonder if you can speak to some of those truths about what happens when you're going down this rabbit hole of being an entrepreneur. What's the dark side of that? Yeah, I think you can definitely work too hard. One of the values of startup is focus and hyper-focused and all this. But focus, again, you tweak it to 11, that turns into tunnel vision. And very often that would mean that you're not actually aware of the other inputs that you need in your life to, to make the right decisions. And oftentimes that is about whether you need to take better care of your mental health or your physical health or, or your social health. You know, that There's all kinds of things that people need in order to, to survive. So with the downside of being an entrepreneur, I mean, there, there are risks, right? I mean, you can work too hard, you can toil away for years and lose focus and jeopardize your family's income or jeopardize your own future. Right, right. What, what makes it worth it to you? Because there's downside to everything, but what's the upside of entrepreneurship? Why do you do what you do and you don't go back to corporate life? Yeah, I mean, it, it is the sense of free action. I mean, you are beholden to yourself and you know, maybe that's a little bit of my personality here also. I, I'm, I'm very certain that there's certain people that probably are not uh, well suited to this type of operating. From a biographical point of view, uh, it just occurred to me, one thing that is probably been decisive for me is my very first entrepreneurial endeavor was the worst failure, right? In the sense that it took me about 18 months to figure out I was about to go bankrupt. Um, can and it was can like, you tell us what it was? What were you working on? Well, this, I, was, I didn't have an idea, right? I just thought I'd quit and be smart. And then, you know, <laughs> All right, I, yeah. Admit, amazing things would happen as a result of that. Um, so about 18 months in, you, you weren't... You weren't on the right track? Not at all. I simply, so this is the idea of, okay, the social web was happening. I needed to figure out what that meant for the recruitment world. And if I could figure that out, then maybe I'd be able to sell some sort of consultancy services to, to companies that wanted to see around the corner and position themselves and future-proof themselves for this coming world. But I couldn't figure out how to... I didn't have the right business model for it. The revenue model wasn't right. So I spent a lot of time having conversations with lots of prospects who were all super interested and yeah, this is all great, but I couldn't get that check written. Mm. Um, and I could not convert that into money. And it's demoralizing, right? You say, how many yeah. times do I need to go pitch this and then have this no happen all while this cash burn going on? And then essentially, you know, I, I came down to, oh, wow, you know, <laughs> there's nothing in the bank balance here. It's running on my own money here. And I thought, right, do I need to remortgage here, mm. you know, and continue? Uh, right. this kind of thing? Yeah. And then I thought, you know what, what I need here is a radical pivot in terms of the business model. Obviously, People aren't buying. I need to make it easier for people to buy, de-risk it, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I just flip how you charge and maybe change the focus of who I was pitching to. And then suddenly, you know, you get some business, some customers. And you also flip how you do the first contact, right? How do you acquire the customer? 
Because amazingly, I worked 10 years as a recruiter. You should at that time know how to, to do customer acquisition. But let me tell you, it's a totally different show when you're running it by yourself because you don't have a salary. Customer acquisition, when you're getting paid a regular salary, means you do activities ABC. Customer acquisition, when you have zero salary, means you do XYZ. They're two different types of things you need to deploy. How are they different? Because I'm, I'm curious, there are a lot of people out there who listen and would love to be a consultant or have some sort of idea. And they've done okay. business development or they've done sales within a business where they've gotten a paycheck or maybe a commission yeah. statement for 20 yeah. years. And you're right. That moment that you're out on your own and you're selling yourself or your idea is completely different. So what do you think the differences were? And how did you have to change your approach to market? Okay, so very clearly, when you're working for an employer and you're doing business and you're doing customer acquisition, chances are that's your main job. What you're not doing is all the operations, all the marketing, all the admin, all the other stuff that you have to do as your own entrepreneur. So the big difference is when you're working without salary as an entrepreneur is that suddenly your workload goes up. And the time you have to do the old school way of business development is about 50% less than it was before. And because you're doing less of it, you have more pressure because you're not getting paid, your ability to convert degrades. You're not going to be as good a salesperson on that regard. So people listening in right now who are employees and thinking about becoming entrepreneurs because they are great at doing this one thing and they want to keep doing it, they need to really think about how they're going to acquire customers without regular income. And that is where I see most people who move out of employment and into entrepreneurship, consultancy, freelancing, that type of activity, that's where they fall down. Because they may love to do marketing, let's say, or they may love to do strategy work or all those types of things. But you're going to end up doing a lot of this acquisition of customers and that may not be what you want to do. And you need to figure out how to do that scalably. Otherwise, you're going to go pop. You're going to end up where I was, you know, 18 months in, no customers, no paycheck, about to sell my flat. These aren't good decisions to make. Um, no, no. Well, so. well said. It reminds me of my own journey. And I would tell people a similar story like, oh, I'm doing more operations. I'm doing more the basic business stuff. And people would say to me, well, you should outsource that. Like with what fucking money? You know, like, <laughs> you don't outsource things when you're a company of one. You do everything, and that's low value work, Lori. Well, it is low value work to you know a Fortune 500 company, but I'm a Fortune you know 50,000 company <laughs> at this point. So it was up to me to do every aspect of my business when I was starting out, and there was no outsourcing it. And you're right, if you don't have a process or a system, or at least be more thoughtful about that, you get lost in the weeds and your ability to convert definitely degrades. That was well said. Yeah, people can, can tell, right? I mean, yeah. when you're speaking uh, to... So another thing that I discovered was the pitch process is, is a killer for a small business. If you're running a tight margin and you're having to go out and pitch to companies, you probably will not make it. And, and that sounds harsh, but simply if these people are acquiring your services in, in a pitching approach, they're already asking quite a lot of work from you. They're asking you to put a deck together. They're asking you to do some strategy already. They're asking you to turn up on time, follow up, do all of those types of things. And as a one-man business, which is probably where you start at, uh, one-person business, I beg your pardon, you can't afford to give that type of free labor away. Whereas someone who's got a 10-person business, actually, they could afford that because uh, they've hired someone to do the slide deck. They can basically disperse the risk across more people. Whereas if you're one person that basically has aggregated all the risk, your time is super precious and you cannot go on pitches. A lot of people think that's insane. But if you're a one-person entrepreneur, please, you need to find a different way to acquire customers. 
need to get them to come to you. Well, I love that advice. And Hung, when we come back in the second half, we're going to talk about what I think makes entrepreneurs successful, and that's relationships. So everybody sit tight. We'll be right back right after the break with more Let's Fix Work. I'm excited to be back at Work Human this year with keynote speakers like Brene Brown and Gary Hamill. Work Human brings together visionaries, thought leaders, and industry experts to share the latest research and ideas about the most compelling workplace issues. Do you work in HR? Are you a leader of teams? Do you wonder how to align your executive strategy with your people strategy? Well, join me at Work Human March 18th through 21st in Nashville, Tennessee. Visit workhuman.com and use code WORKHUMANLFW for a $100 discount. That's workhuman.com and use code WORKHUMANLFW for a $100 discount. And remember, head on over to workhuman.com and use that code WORKHUMANLFW for a $100 discount today. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Let's Fix Work. I'm Lori Rudiman, and I'm here today with my dear friend, Hung Lee. Hung, how you doing? I'm all right. How are you? Oh my gosh. I'm so grateful that you're here just giving us honest advice about being entrepreneurs. And during the break, we were talking a little bit about that pitch process and just how demoralizing it can be if you're a one-woman show like me and you're out there with your little clipboard and you're trying to get customers to pay attention to you. The conversion rate is generally low. You're spending a lot of hours pitching to people who are not going to buy your services. So the answer is to make it easy for people to buy from you. How the hell do you do that? <laughs> well, there's two things. I think firstly, they need to discover you very easily. So one part of customer acquisition is the discovery process. It's typically buyer and seller just don't know each other. So how can you do that? Standard way to do it would be, oh, go get a mailing list or go get a bunch of phone numbers and do outbound. Now, when you do outbound, if that's your first encounter with a customer, your success rate in converting that business is going to be close to zero. And there's a whole load of reasons about that. But to boil it down into a couple, which are relevant, is number one, people have familiarity bias. That's one of the core cognitive biases that drive human evolution. In other words, we are terrified of things that we don't know. And if we don't know you as a supplier or don't know your brand as a business, we default to no. The default is no, and it's at a very high percentage default to no. So you're not even going to get a chance to pitch your amazing service or product because I don't know who the hell you are. The second problem you have is that you've got no credibility. So even if I spend time and say, okay, I'll give this Laurie a chance, she seems okay, then I look at your background and actually I'm the first customer or the third customer or however it is. I don't see enough background there. Again, that's a risk factor. Another social bias would be called social proof. You don't have that, so you're out. So most new new businesses, when they do the outbound approach, they can't overcome those first two problems, which is basically familiarity bias and social proof. Well, that's incredibly depressing. The outbound doesn't work, right? We're not going to pick up the phone and cold call a bunch of prospects. So what are we going to do to make it easy for people to buy from us? You have to reverse the flow of information, Laura. So if you think about where your energy is going when you're doing outbound, you are going and pushing information out. So it's like push. What you need to do is pull it towards you. And you do that by trying to create, I would say, spaces, either physical or digital spaces, where your audience can actually come and explore some of the topics that are interesting or important to them. So without being too kind of meta about it, your podcast is probably a good example of that, where this is a digital space, it's an uh, audio space where people can encounter some of the problems that are interesting to them. But I, as a listener, would come to your podcast voluntarily, mindfully, because I want something from this. You haven't pitched a podcast to me in some way. I just you know, think maybe this is something interesting. And if you can encounter that person in that 
neutral space, that's when you can start building a relationship. That's when you can give yourself an opportunity to have a future conversation that will lead to business. Having said a lot of that, it's basically inbound marketing. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. We just got a masterclass in inbound marketing though. And you know, Hung, you also do something that's just so elegant and so smart. And that is your newsletter. And I don't say that very often about a newsletter, but you have created a work of art where you're sharing... I wouldn't use the word thought leadership because that word is overstated, but really key opinions, smart advice, just good stuff that people should consume. So can you tell us about the newsletter and your thoughts and your thinking behind creating that? Right. So the newsletter itself is an example of what I mean. So it's a newsletter called Recruiting Brain Food. And the genesis of this was I realized that there's a lot of great recruiting content or content addressing recruiting and talent in general on the internet. But it's just extremely difficult to discover because there's so much crap out there as well. So there's a huge signal to noise problem. And guess what? Everyone has this problem. So I just... Out of my, for my own personal use, I started bookmarking and collecting some of the great stuff that I found because you can't always consume it as on the point of discovery. Rarely you can do that. You have to schedule it away somewhere so you can consume it at a regular time, which I always did on Sunday morning because you know what? That's my time to think and have some deeper reading and so on. And then it just occurred to me, why don't I just share this list? You know, if I'm collecting all this stuff on a week to week basis, maybe some other people could be interested in it. And so, Hence, Recruiting Brain Food, it was created. It was a newsletter. It goes out every Sunday morning, UK times, kind of Sunday afternoon for folks in the US. And the idea is I'm going to just curate maybe 10 articles of that week, which is going to be recruiting brain food for your week ahead. It's just to give people in the recruiting industry, in the HR discipline, some inspiration something they didn't know, something that may give them just a little bit of a deeper pause for thought that they wouldn't otherwise get. So that's as simple as that. Every week on Sunday, you get that in your inbox. You know, I love it because there are two things that are really awesome about this newsletter. One is that it is recruiting brain food, but it's just good work-related brain food. There are articles about the future of work. I mean, it's just a very diverse set of articles that you send. And the second cool thing you do is that you give credit where credit is due. If you find an article from someone, you cite that person. And I wonder what the psychology is behind that. Oh, I mean, I just think that's that's right. Um, You know, there's no strategy behind that other than the fact that's just true justice, I would say. One of the things that people have noticed and have commented to say, you know, why don't you put uh, any content from this mainstream business or this mainstream media supplier? You know, that's a deliberate decision because my preference is to focus on the smaller, the independents, the boutiques, the individuals, you know, the people that I think don't have the audience but should. So yeah, absolutely. I, I, I try to focus on folks that I think are, are saying and doing great things. If they feature, of course, they're going to get a shout out. And indeed, if people kind of, you know, send me stuff. But in another way, my discovery process on content has totally changed because most of the brain food is now sent to me by the subscriber. <laughs> This is the power um, of inbound. We keep talking about it. Yes. <laughs> it's great. They just share it with me, right? And if they're going to do that, then of course I'm going to give them a shout out. Yeah. What we're talking about really is the currency of life. It's relationships. And I see this playing out in your entrepreneurial journey. And it seems like you've always been good at cultivating relationships. But is that true? Were you good at the beginning of your entrepreneurial journey? Is this something that you were doing when you were a recruiter? Or have you developed your skills as a relationship expert as you've built your businesses? Um, I, I would say most people who have had success in recruitment probably have some ability to create relationships. And I, yeah, I've definitely learned how to get better at it. And you know, I've, I've learned from good friends, you know, good friends that have taught me how to have a conversation where you're paying attention. I'll tell you a story, a very interesting story, actually. 
I've set myself up to massive pressure because it probably isn't that interesting. (laughs) I love it. We've got an audio engineer and I'm going to make sure he leaves that in, that statement that you're going to tell us a great story. (laughs) Please do. So there's a friend of mine who was having a conversation with another friend of mine at this party. And friend A was having a very animated conversation with friend B. And friend B, God bless him, unfortunately, he's a a profoundly boring person. (laughs) And I I say that with due respect because he's a solid dude, really nice guy, but he's not very good being interesting in a conversational context just doesn't say a lot you know when he does say things it's not necessarily anything you can work with you know you're not going to get that fizzy chat out of of this person but yet i saw my friends have very animated and engaged and all this conversation with them he was there for like 30 minutes in this party speaking to this dude and so i pulled him to one side and i said hey listen mike tell me why you were so interested in that conversation man and he said the conversation is owned by the two people having it you know so if you're sitting there, you're having a conversation and you're bored, guess what? At least 50% of the responsibility is you. This person is not there to entertain you, huh? You need to go and have the chat and see what you can learn from this person because that person has something to teach you. And that, that's when the penny dropped for me in terms of a relationship building generally because I realized I can't be walking around with this, you know, what am I getting out of this chat type of type of attitude. Um, I need to pay attention to what everyone is saying because that person is going to teach me something. And inevitably, once you have that attitude and that mindset, then you know what? People open up to you in a way in which they previously wouldn't. You know, no one likes to be judged. A lot of people fear that they're being judged and that actually stops them from coming forward and saying stuff. But if you're there in your presence and you're paying attention and you, you want to learn from what this person's point of view is, you'd be amazed at the how much they've got to offer. So I think that's one of the fundamental tenets of relationship building that I've learned. The two parties involved, they jointly own it. You know, Hung, it reminds me of a story you told me when I was working on my startup where before a friend of yours wrote a line of code, he went out and had lunch with people and he talked about his idea and he asked people what they were doing. And you know, I don't really remember the details of the story, but what stuck with me is that this individual was so committed. Do you remember the story? So committed Mm -hmm. to having these conversations before doing a line of work, like doing a lick of work. And it really impressed upon me the importance of conversations, asking good questions, and relationship building is the core fundamental like infrastructure of my business. And it also reminded me of how wrong I was doing it because I'd written code at that point, right? And so I had all this technical debt that I had assumed before I'd had any conversation with anybody. And I wonder, can you tell me more about that individual and refresh my memory about him and what he did? Because it was just such a like a moment for me in my journey as an entrepreneur. Well, I mean, relating specifically to technology, ultimately, 99% of all of the apps that are out there are not particularly innovative. They're just things that make things a little bit more efficient. So yeah, 1% guilty. Of te- guilty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah 1%, 1%. And this is not to denigrate those apps. Those apps are what people use. There's probably 1% of technology businesses out there that are genuinely making world-changing, business-changing type of products. Most things are web apps, right? That are going to help you find a pet walker or something like that. This is something you could do without the app, but it's going to make it faster for you. So what this guy was able to figure out was that the coding wasn't the problem. What the problem was, was why do people struggle with it? What was the issue? Kind of manufactured a solution, but it's inefficient. Is the inefficiency enough for it to be appable? 
so to speak. Right. And, you know, that's the, I think the fella, he ended up creating some sort of random meetup app, yes. uh, which is about, yeah. about networking, right? Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, the central problem he identified was that networking is terrible, or at least, you know, when we talk about networking, we have a vision of, you know, all these people, ghastly people, which were one of the ghastly people in a foyer somewhere looking at name tags and trying to figure out whether this person's worth time or not. So that's a horrible experience. And he just thought, look, there's no rich conversations taking place in that context. The best conversations you have with people you don't know tend to be a little bit more serendipitous. And so he basically created a randomized networking app where essentially the system would allocate you a person to have coffee with. And you would just commit to have a coffee at a certain point in the week at a regular time, just show up and some other person would show up kind of like dating, but not because the person would just show up and it, you know, you, you could just have that chance. The good thing about, I think the reason why I shared that particular story with you is because he was literally just doing it on a spreadsheet. He had a website, looked like a nice website. You, you go through the workflow, you fill in the form, you do all of this type of stuff and look like automated stuff. But there was just a spreadsheet and he was doing a manual matching um, <laughs> at the back end of it. I love it. I love it though. But why invest in code until you've got a proof of concept and you know that this works, right? Right. And not only is it kind of a, a cost-efficient way of doing it, but as you mentioned the word technical debt, one of the problems you have when you're building technology is that the technology itself can sometimes have a weight to it, which then actually directs the product and the business in a direction where maybe you shouldn't go because you've already loaded it with all this type of stuff. It's like overloading the balance of a boat. You may want it to go in that direction, but if you're one or two degrees off because you've overloaded it, you're going to end up in the place you don't want to be. So it's much better having a very light system, get to where you need to go, map that out first, and then you can put the outboard engine in at any time, right? I feel that same kind of metaphor applies to the world of consultancies too, because there's all these biases that we bring to our consultancy, all these beliefs, all these expectations, and we build a light business model, or maybe we don't build a business model, but we go to market. And it turns out all of those assumptions and expectations that we had were all wrong. And we didn't do enough conversation, enough discovery, enough relationship building at the front end. And then six months later, or 18 months later, like you, we're thinking about mortgaging our flat. Yeah. And you know, one thing it's taught me as well, Laura, just to accelerate this concept a little bit more, is that I think it's totally possible to do networking only and not necessarily have strategy or a product or a service or a business. Because such as the value of networking these days, or at least for building those networks and, and being able to use those relationships to affect, can generate you money and can generate you a business. So I, I know a few people that kind of do only that, basically just spend all their time building network and connecting others and connecting themselves and so forth. Don't have a business plan, but you know what? They get work because they're in the middle of the flow of information. Talk about outboard motor and the boat analogy. Let's stay, stay aquatic. You can uh, think about it from a, a, like fishing, right? Like you could be technically an amazing fisherman or a fisher person, but if you're actually standing at the wrong side of the bank and you haven't got the right tool, you know what? You ain't going to catch anything. Or you could be a mediocre fisherman, but you stood right in the middle of where the salmon run is. All you need to do is open your coat pocket and you know what? Some salmon are going to jump in. So I think that especially in a connected world, people need to be very conscious of where the flow of information is. And if you're a business person or if you're an entrepreneur, you need to more or less be standing at the confluence of where that information flows for your particular market, your particular industry. And you're going to do okay. You know, you could have flaws in every single thing you're doing. If you stood in the right place, you're going to be all right. 
Well, that's a lovely way to end the conversation, Hung. If you had to leave our listeners with any advice for the new year around their new consultancy, their new product, their new idea, where, where are you sending them? What are you sharing with them? What do they need to know? Okay. So if you're working in the recruiting space or whatever, of course, sign up to recruitingbrainfood.com. Get on that. That's going to help you simply because it's going to be some added value once per week. Very easy, low touch. A personal bit of advice for someone who's launching a business or an initiative, I would say be open with your journey and be open with it early. So in other words, one of the major problems I identify with business in general is that we tend not to advertise what we're doing until we've done it because maybe we are fearful of advertising a potential failure let's say. So we need to have the plan, we need to have the customers, we need to have all of this before we're even talking about what we're doing. In the world where we're at now and the economy as it is now, that is a missed opportunity. If you are open with your journey and very early with it, you'll be able to not only do a lot of market intelligence that you'd get from the people who are seeing it, but you'll also be able to engage your future customers because they can see what's happening before it's happened. You know, you're know, you giving them a taste of what you're going to serve to them before you've actually served it. And that's very easy for anybody to do. So be open with what you're doing. That was really beautiful. Really well said. Hung, it was such a pleasure to have you on Let's Fix Work. We're going to include a link to all of your contact information and your awesome newsletter in the show notes. Thank you so much, not only for being a guest today, but just being my buddy, being my friend. It's it's really great. Laurie, I could I could do another one. Let's, let's go and do another <laughs> show. This, this needs to be a series. I love it. <laughs> well, Hung, I hope to see you sometime soon in 2019. And everybody, stick around. We'll be right back with more Let's Fix Work. 2019 is here, and I know you're thinking about building a better life and a better career. If you've been curious about podcasting, I've got some information that can be helpful for you to connect with employees, build a business, improve your brand, make more money, or connect on a deeper level with potential clients. I want to encourage you to apply for Danny Osmond's Podcast Supercharger course. Who's Danny Osmond? Oh my God, this guy is a lifesaver. I have been through four podcast producers and Danny is helping me clean up, kick butt and take names with Let's Fix Work. He's super important to me. I've learned a ton about podcast production and I can't say enough about how great it's been to work with him and learn from him. If you are ready to give up the struggle and create an amazing podcast in the year ahead, then apply today for Danny's live podcast supercharger program. For six weeks from February through March 2019, he's working deeply with just a handful of students who are determined to start a podcast and finally see the results they know they deserve. To find out more about the Podcast Supercharger course and register, go to the Podcast Supercharger link in the show notes. Applications are being reviewed as they come in and spots will fill on a first-come first serve basis. So go create an amazing podcast, join team podcaster and hang out with Danny and learn something new in 2019. Hey everybody, welcome back. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Hung Lee. If you want to learn more about him, connect or sign up for his fabulous newsletter, Recruiting Brain Food, check out our show notes. Let's Fix Work was recorded in London and Raleigh this week and produced by Emerald City Productions in Nashville, Tennessee. It takes a village to get this show on the air, and the mayor of that village is Danny Osmond. He makes the show sound great, and I'm really grateful. 
One more note, if you'll just forgive me for this, but Work Human has sponsored Let's Fix Work throughout the entire month of January. And I am incredibly grateful for their partnership, for their collaboration, for their support. Work Human is a conference that's sponsored by Globoforce, which is a rewards and recognition company. It's a company that is committed to helping people say thank you at work. I just love everything they're about. I've been working with them for years. So go ahead and check out the conference. It's workhuman.com. We've got a discount for you in the show notes. And please, if you're interested, come and see me speak. I would love to meet you in real life. There's nothing more satisfying than putting a face to a name and to an avatar. So please visit workhuman.com and come see me in Nashville, March 18th through the 21st. It would just be a real joy and a privilege to meet you. Now that's all from me for today. I really hope you enjoyed it and we'll see you next time on Let's Fix Work. If you're ready to make a real change in your workplace, start today by number one, subscribing to Let's Fix Work on the Apple Podcasts app or iTunes or Stitcher or Android or wherever you listen. Number two, write a five-star rating and review. And number three, share it with a friend, colleague or coworker who you think would enjoy our episodes.